You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you about a new podcast from Stitcher called Lost at the Smithsonian. So they take Asif Manvi, who is one of my favorite Daily Show uh, correspondents of all time, and they pair him up with curators and celebrities and guests, and they look into some of the most iconic artifacts from the National Museum of American History. We're talking about stuff like Fonzie's leather jacket and Dorothy's ruby slippers. Uh, they trace how these special objects came to define our culture. It's available now. You can listen and subscribe to Lost at the Smithsonian right now on Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Subscribe today. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. And joining me today, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, you guys. Hi. Another week, another Long Form Podcast. Another week, co-hosts together having fun <laughs> 362 <laughs> at some point these numbers are getting arbitrary right like it's 362 it's 411 it's 289 no one's really keeping track i'd like to i'd like this to be known as the 36th season of the long form <laughs> podcast uh hey evan who'd you have on the show this week man uh this week i had andrew Morantz. andrew Morantz is a staff writer at the new yorker magazine he also has a book that's coming out it's called antisocial the subtitle is online extremists techno utopians and the hijacking of the american conversation uh he has written a lot about the alt-right about online trolling, about things going viral on the internet and all of the darkness that can ensue from that. Um, and also, as you guys know, every couple of years, I like to have my uh, someone from my family on the podcast. He is my cousin by marriage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, he's, he's been to a lot of dark places like your family Thanksgiving. <laughs> I happen, uh, listeners may not know that I happen to have married into a family full of writers. Uh, this will not be the last that will come on this podcast. I'll, I'll say that. Um, my my mother-in-law, Robin Ranshenig, has been on, and this is her nephew, Andrew Morantz. Dynasty. Uh, if you got a writing family, you're going to need a, uh, a newsletter. Keep all that stuff uh, ready. A family writing newsletter. No, no better place to do that than with MailChimp. They make it very easy, and I'll say this about a MailChimp newsletter. Gmail really knows how to handle a MailChimp newsletter 
puts it nicely and it's in your, you know, whichever one of those tabs it is. That's the kind of thing you want. Nice design, customizable. They got it all at MailChimp. Thanks to MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Andrew Moritz. How's your family? They're great. They, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. I know, I know. It's been, it's been, yeah, I'm not even like doing the book tour thing yet, but I already feel like pre-book tour. Are you going out? Uh, like I'm doing some on stuff. On the road? I'm doing San Francisco, LA, Chicago, DC. So like, you know, a few things. It's pretty good. That's a stadium tour. Yeah, but I, you know, like there's a thing where there's the version of this that would be the pre having kids version, having kid in my case version where I would like drive across the country and like do that hashtag van life and like go out and, you know, see everyone I know in every town. And now I'm just like, could I take a red eye home? Yeah. It's like the minimal amount I could do here. Yeah. It's a good problem to have because I just legit want to get home. But it's also um, there. I remember being an editorial assistant sitting. This is like getting ahead of ourselves but I remember sitting in like an inner ring of desks where like the help sits at the New Yorker uh-huh. and like the important people sit in the outer ring and I it wasn't quite open plan office the way it is now but it was uh, when you're in one of the editorial assistant seats you hear a lot of stuff so I would hear people who were a few years my senior being offered crazy like things that I was like I would kill for that you know like people who were like, like stories or like, like stories jobs? stories like uh-huh. people who would you know, I'm trying to think of where I sat. I mean, I was sitting near Ben McGrath, Rafi Kachadorian, Kelifasana, Ari Levy, like the staff writers who I most admired, who I was like fanboying out about just even seeing them being offered like, would you go to Antarctica and like find a tunnel that leads to a volcano? And like, we can get you on the helicopter if you go in two days. And they'd be like, ah, man, I don't know. I got to, you know, pick my kid up at preschool. And I'd be like, are you insane? Give it to me. I will do anything. I like, I, and they would be like, it's not that safe. I'd be like, I don't care. And now I'm like, eh. <laughs> um, so I should say in a more official capacity, Andrew Morantz, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's actually, it's it's tricky it's tricky that we're family because it's kind of like I have resisted having you on the podcast because that seems like Too nepotism. Yeah. But also wanted to have you on the podcast because you've happened to have written many things. <laughs> you should see the fucking dog ears I have in this book. <laughs> oh, this, this is this is the things I was going to ask you about. Like <laughs> that would be like an eighteen-hour <laughs> podcast. But I feel like the book gave like a very good, yeah. solid reason to finally have you on the podcast. Also, the title's antisocial, and I feel like the subtitle could be some version of, like, how did a nice Jewish kid from the suburbs end up hanging out with <laughs> trolls and neo-Nazis for several years? And i that is what I would like to explore. Yeah. So we know that you, you're a family man now, but mm-hmm. let's go back closer to the beginning, because the book does, it actually does delve a little bit into your own background, and... You describe yourself as a bit of a contrarian child. Mm, Yeah. So I thought a lot about how I could, if there was any way I could relate to these people. So like... These people being people in the alt-right trolls. Yeah, the alt-right slash alt-light slash world of trollery. So we can get into how I ended up immersing myself with these people. It was not... It was not for the sake of like, whoa, these people are bad dudes. And I'm really fascinated by 
in a kind of ethnographic way, just like how they roll. Mm-hmm. Like that ended up being an interest, but the original interest was more about the internet and how the internet was tearing apart our society and kind of looking for a good case study of how that would work. I didn't just want to write an argument about theoretically what is the internet and what could it do. I wanted to write a reported chronicle of what the internet was doing in real time from the vantage point of the people who were using the internet to fuck shit up basically. And uh, there are so many different ways it could have gone. It could have been, I mean, there's a whole part of the book that goes pre 2015, 2016, pre the idea of Trumpism as a political force, just, you know, more with the clickbait world of things and how the internet was allowing our aesthetics and our economy and our kind of culture of information sharing to be messed up. And then it kind of transitions into how it's doing that in politics and everything else. But the part about you, you as a younger person, yeah. when you kind of glance at it, it's like not quite like I could have been one of these yeah. people, but it's a little bit like I'm scared of what the world would have been for a, like a contrarian, like anti-establishment teenager in the suburbs. Yeah, exactly. Who encounters what you encounter today on the Internet. So but what did it how did that actually pan out for you? Exactly. So this is the way I could find some hinge of connection with these people. Once I actually found myself in their world, obviously what they do is repulsive and in many ways deplorable to use the word that Hillary Clinton used for them but there is something relatable about them and one of the things was this contrarian impulse so I mean I remember there was actually an earlier draft where I went into this in way more detail that I almost thought about sending you but then I was like I'm already asking him to read a 400 page book but there was you know there was a version of me where I was you know I grew up in the Connecticut suburbs there's nothing very interesting about the Connecticut suburbs Um, at least you know, there's nothing cool about the Connecticut suburbs. So, you know, like I went to punk shows and I like tried to like be a skater for about a week. And I, you know, like I wore like thrift store blazers and like got really into Rocky Horror Picture Show and like all the kind of signifiers of screw you guys. I'm different. I'm not one of you because like, I don't know. I just instinctively felt like there's no way I can carve out an identity out of being like, I'm like you, but the cool version, that was never going to happen. So <laughs> it's like, I got to carve out something else. Gotta go in the other direction. Got to go in the other direction. And also it's like, there is something about this feeling of secret knowledge or a secret identity that there is just an amazing pull that that kind of offers to you where you feel like I'm in this kind of self-contained, self-reinforcing universe. But then also once you get there, there is a community built into it. Mm -hmm. So you get to feel like an individual contrarian while also having the backup of a social world. Did you find some version of that? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I had my people who were like, wherever, you know, the kind of Abercrombie wearing masses (laughs) are going, we're going to go the other way. And that then becomes its own aesthetic unto itself, you know? So then, you know, mentioning going to punk shows, like, Then you get into the references that the Dead Kennedys are making and that, you know, Operation Ivy is making. And then you go, oh, okay, there's a lineage here. And then when I, I don't really know what changed. I mean, it's weird in a way that I went to Brown and didn't become like a bow tie wearing libertarian or a, you know, like a, I don't know. There's a million contrarian things that you could have been coming <laughs> Especially, out of. Yeah. When you go a place like that, the, the real contrarian thing is to be the, is totally. to be that. Yes. There's def- there's always one or two per class who are like, you hacky sack 
liberal dipshits like I'm going to do my thing and my thing is going to be, you know, launching the Dartmouth Review if you're Dinesh D'Souza or launching the Stanford Review if you're Peter Thiel. Or... It's always a review. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, for some reason, that didn't have, you know, I still had my contrarian impulses. I had my like, I had my world that I had kind of built around myself. But I think doing that politically just wasn't that interesting to me because I don't know, but I do wonder if I had had a computer in my pocket that was able to give me these really sharp, seductive talking points. I was going to say simple, but not not simple. Like something to hook into. I don't really know where I would have ended up. So then at the time, what kind of pulled you into journalism? Because I feel like I didn't know the exact timing of your college years but you were I mean there were a couple of articles that were pretty mm-hmm. early out of college like it seemed like you went right for that yeah and as uh, dedicated listeners of the podcast will know uh, your aunt is is a journalist uh, Robin Rance Henning and but your parents are not right I happen to know from my deep research <laughs> that they're both doctors mm-hmm. um, was there something in particular that drew you into it yeah I mean so there's I definitely learned from Aunt Robin and from other people that I knew, but mostly from her, that it was a thing you could do. Mm. But I didn't have, I was not very goal oriented, as they say. I was very into exploring and like looking into different ideas. I mean, I was that kid who, so even though I wasn't a bow tie wearing libertarian, I was annoying in other ways. And when I got to Brown, you know, they have this whole thing where they don't have a core curriculum and they say, like, just go explore and do whatever you want. And, you know, don't even take classes for grades if you don't want to. And I was the kid, the one kid who was like, okay, I'll do that. And then they were like, <laughs> wait a minute, you're supposed to, like, be a little structured and a little, like... We have to evaluate you in some way, right? I was like, okay, I'm not going to take any classes for grades. I'm going to just try things out and see. I took, like, every course that had the word consciousness in it somewhere and just sort of figured it out and eventually I got to a point where I was like okay I am going to have to pay rent and but I want to contribute something I don't know what exactly there was this idea that I encountered in philosophy I started in philosophy and then ended up in religious studies and there was this idea in the philosophy of religion and in philosophy proper that's called the transcendentals, this idea of how you break down reality into its most basic irreducible components. And in the 17th century kind of Neoplatonic era, that starts being thought of as the good, the beautiful, and the true. Those are like the three irreducible pursuits that a human can strive for that can't be reduced one to the other, that can't be broken down. And I couldn't decide which of those ones to pursue like I couldn't so like pure beauty would be I'm a painter or a poet or a ceramicist and I live in a shack somewhere and I don't even care if anyone ever sees what I do you know I'm like Emily Dickinson pure goodness would be you know I'm on the front lines of fighting battles for social justice and you know I'm just Mother Teresa and Truth would be maybe like an academic who is like, I'm going to spend 10 years solving Fermat's last theorem or something. And the only one I could think of that touched on all of them was journalism, specifically long form journalism, which wasn't called that then, but just like something where you can re-describe the world to itself in a way that felt 
ideally good and beautiful and true. That's one of the most uh, both intellectual and optimistic descriptions of long form journalism yeah, that mostly, I've ever heard. Mostly, I just wanted to make serious <laughs> money, and I was like, McKinsey or journalism? It's, I, a, it's a toss up, man. <laughs> no, I I just like, and obviously, you know, it's funny you say optimistic because now whenever I'm asked to you know speak at a class or you know someone emails me and says should I do this, I always start by saying no, you should not do this. And then, you know, sometimes they ignore you and or they say, but I have to. And, you know, then it's like, OK, if it's, you know, that thing of like, if it's the only thing you can imagine doing. But I really do try to impress on people like it's not just like a pro forma thing that people say like, oh, it's really hard out there. I think when you're in college, you sort of hear that and you go like, yeah, but everything's hard. Everything's hard. People say that law firms aren't hiring the way they used to. And people it's like, yeah, but this is there's no reason to think that there's a market for this shit. Like there's no, like there's nowhere in the constitution that says we're going to have journalists. It says we have a, the government can't shut down journalists, but it doesn't say it's going to fund them. (laughs) Right. So it's like, you can't, I don't know. I do try to impress on people. It might not be a thing for very long, but to the extent that it exists, I am optimistic about what the form can do because I think it's not only the truth function of like, muckraking and you know ferreting out corruption at city hall although that's great it's also the function of it that can aspire to be art even though it is written on deadline and it has ads for booze stapled next to it and it happens within these constraints and it has to you know happen within like a very mundane sort of logistical world i do think that it can be art and like i people give me shit for that and i you know feel pretentious saying it but like that's the thing that motivates me. I, I I want it to be beautiful in addition. I mean, it's like you feel dumb saying it, but it's like, why try to do it if you're not trying to? You might to, as well admit that that's what you're striving for. Why not try to do sounds... it if you're not going to try to do it? Yeah. So we'll, 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 we will return to whether or not it will continue to be viable mm. in the face of what has happened mm. uh, in the last 10 years. But you also, so, but you did go to journalism school. Yeah. Um, I was laughing because I looked back at some notes that I had written about questions I wanted to ask you. And one of them just said, J school worthwhile (laughs) question mark. If you don't have to pay too much for it. I mean, if you don't have to go into debt for it, it kind of depends. Like, well, what was the logic? What was your, your chain of logic that you followed? I had moved to Brooklyn like everyone else I knew. I kind of just like was like, where did most of my friends go? Most of them went to Brooklyn. My friend from college, Jessica Weisberg, also a long-form journalist, found... Great, we can have her on the podcast. She's great, yeah. She's the best. She works in way more mediums than I can ever hope to learn. She had found this apartment in Fort Greene that was like... They should like film the real world there. It was internal spiral staircase and these kind of built-in gilded mirrors. We called it Scrooge McDuck Mansion because it just looked insane. And so... And it was like... I paid like $600 a month or whatever. This is how I'm officially old. Once you're like, the rent was $600. (laughs) But then, so I was like, okay, I can make this work. I had like a bill by the hour day job at the New York Times, putting stuff online by like converting it to HTML. Mm. And I didn't know how to do that, but I just taught myself enough HTML. I mean, really, really basic. Like, and you know, I remember like messing up a div tag in some line of code. I don't even know what that is, but I just was like, had to go through you know, Google, like, why did I mess this up? That was my hourly wage job. Hmm. And then I would, you know, like 
find the email address of someone who worked at the New York press and be like, can I write a review of this off-Broadway play for free? And then like hound them seven times until they responded to that email. You know, is that glamorous life? And I started doing a couple of things that I felt pretty good about. Like one of them was that Harper's piece. There was like a Mother Jones piece about working at a call center. Those were both before you went to school. Yeah. So I had started doing those and, you know, I'd done a couple other things. They were starting up this thing at NYU called (laughs) Kevin, uh, Uncle Kevin still makes fun of the name, but they called it literary reportage. (laughs) So we still, I still, every Thanksgiving, I still get a like, so how's your reportage going? (laughs) But it was the first year of it and they offered me a fellowship. So yeah, that's a calculation you can get behind. And they had Suketu Mento was there. Ted Conover was there. Lawrence Weschler was there at the time. Adrian Nicole LeBlanc was doing a thing there. So I was like, yeah. Those are the heaviest hitters. Totally. In this world. Totally. So then did you go straight from there to editorial assistant The New Yorker? Yeah, basically. And the the New Yorker job was not a writing job. It was was an editorial job, and I had never done any editing before. And I actually, my experience of being edited had not been uniformly good. But so when you get that job, I mean, I feel like that job of editorial assistant The New Yorker is the job that X number of people get and kind of think... I want to be a writer at the New Yorker and then arrive and realize sometime later that's not actually the way this... Yeah. But you did eventually. So I'm interested in that evolution because there's a weird thing about being inside where you actually can't break up higher. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Would You moved into editing at some point. Yeah, that was... And I knew enough about that even before when I was offered the job to be like, I don't know, should I take this? Because I knew that they didn't want someone who showed up to not do the job Mm -hmm. and just be like, hey, can I write? Can I write? Can I write? They didn't want, that's not what the job is. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to do the job. And I felt like I, at the time, felt like I've written all these pieces and I'm a freelance journalist and I'm making it work. And I actually felt like I was, you know, making a living as a freelancer. But really what it was is in the process of the job interviews, talking to the guy, Daniel, who was going to hire me and being like, oh, I want to be around people like this. This is Daniel Zalewski. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the best story editor I've ever seen work and you know in addition to many other great people who work at the New Yorker who are on a level that I couldn't really imagine at the time like I was still kind of in a mode of thinking that editing was looking over something quickly cutting three of your favorite jokes adding two jokes that you didn't like and like hitting publish it's like shepherding yeah shepherding like oh I don't know this this line I don't know it's like too precious and then like hitting publish and seeing the way that people like thought about pieces like before any a word of it was written more than I thought would ever have gone into like they what I got to see when I started was a big part of my job was going to these um, Tuesday ideas meetings that they had these editorial meetings where it was just basically everyone pitches three ideas out loud yeah and there was kind of this rotating cast of it was mostly editors but writers would come through fact checkers would come through people in the art department people in makeup people in copy and everybody sort of would just sit and say here's what I think would be a good piece in the magazine and sort of seeing the level of you know sometimes it was just like this person's a big deal I think we should profile them but more often it was like I think that a profile of this could be an embedded critique of this and I think that it could be set up in a way that 
would make people feel at odds with themselves when they like there was just a level of kind of crafting at the level of story concept that um there's just a level of conceptual framing that goes into the piece i mean going back to this sort of claim that is maybe grandiose and pretentious that like journalism can strive to be artful that's where i really i just got excited thinking about how that process worked and then that was another part of the the job was thinking about okay going from only thinking about stories that I should do to thinking about stories that other people should. Yeah, do. it's a big. That's a big difference. Yeah, and I mean, but it's liberating in a way because there are stories that Jane Mayer could do, that Larry Wright could do, that David Grand could do, that Andrew Morantz cannot do. So, like, that was a very that was a. It allows you to you know paint with different colors. But then you, I feel like you could have gone, kept going down that road. I mean, I've talked to, for instance, James Verini. He loved you as an editor. Mm. Like you were. I liked it. You yeah. Were, you were in position to be editing features what made you decide that that's not what you wanted to do i loved the idea generation and the idea conceptualization process i mean i loved you know james just as an example came in with this amazing multi-continent cinematic piece and you know we had to storyboard it and take it from fifteen thousand words to seven or whatever and do the whole thing I love that. I love the collaboration. I love the feeling of being in 10 places at once. Like while I was thinking about Somali pirates on the James Verini piece, I was also thinking about Liberian warlords on a Damon Tabor piece. And I was also thinking about like Las Vegas DJs on a Josh Ells piece. And like they all had totally different tones and different conceptual frameworks. I love that. But ultimately, I just like writing more. <laughs> I just like, I just writing, I just, um, it's more risky. The job, it's less job security. It's less structure. You aren't accountable to go to the office every day in the same way. I think someone said, one of the editors there who does editing and writing, I can't remember who, so I'm not going to say, but I think I know, but that with writing, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. And I think that person was using it as an argument for why editing suited their temperament more. And I think for me, I just am okay with the higher highs and the lower lows. Logistically, was that was it difficult to convince them that that's what you wanted? You would rather be doing? Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, a lot of people have gone through this period where they're kind of feeling out both, and then they sort of have to choose. I really wanted to keep doing both, and basically, what happened was the subject matter that, like, I could start to see how I was dipping a toe in different edges of the same lake and that lake was going to be this book and I had to actually like hold my breath and swim across and I just couldn't imagine doing that while also doing justice to editing other people's pieces Mm -hmm. like it's one thing to say okay I don't know how far I can stretch this lake metaphor but it's like it's one thing to say okay I'm going to jump off this dock and like do a few laps and then come back which would be like a 6,000 word piece while you know keeping track of what else is going on on the shore it's another thing to be like I'm just going to go into the depths of this because I, I had a feeling that these things connected up with each other, but I didn't know how exactly. And like, you know, this like doing a book length thing, you kind of just have to be like, I think there's something here. I've written enough of a proposal that I can convince other people that there's something here, but I haven't really convinced myself. And so I just was like, I got to see if there's something here. And mm. plus this was like, there was a time in October 2016 when I thought I had been the annoying, speaking of 
being an annoying shithead contrarian, I had been the guy all along being like, Trump's going to win. I'll bet you money. Yeah. And like, I actually like won a bunch of bets, <laughs> like tr- tragically. But then oh, um, I remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I pissed off a lot of people. I was like, and then November came and I was like, time to drop everything. And but write. Now, yeah, now you. So then I wrote a book proposal between then and Thanksgiving. And then the book proposal went out and was, you know, on inauguration day, it was being read by people. And then I was like off to the races. Well, I was trying to figure out in in looking back at your pieces when when you got sucked into this world a bit because for a while you're doing a lot of cultural stuff you're doing profiles and then you do this piece about silicon valley the tv show which contains one of my all-time favorite scenes of any magazine story which is when the people from the show go to meet someone who's like the person at the google x and the guy gets he's mad about the show and then he tries to storm out and he's wearing rollerblades <laughs> and and the kicker is all the writers who are there to research they're like researching for material for the show and they all look at each other like we can't use this right because it's too over the top no one would believe it and they're all like yeah it wouldn't it wouldn't play like (laughs) it's too good so yeah i'm doing pieces like that i'm doing pieces about like you know comedians leslie jones and yeah leslie jones profile but then i feel like the was it the the story about the clickbait guy whose name is escaping me right now i feel like that to me was a moment where it felt like you were doing something that Maybe people the New Yorker didn't even quite understand, mm. possibly. I, I don't want to say that. But there's a bit in the book about how you're trying to convince people, like, this is a thing, and it's a thing we should pay attention to. And yeah. they're, not, they're not, like, shutting you down, but they're kind of like, okay, man, yeah, do, do what you want. But I was curious if that – was that story what, what kind of pulled you into that world, or had it already yeah. happened? Yes. Yeah. So there's – so in 2014, I think it was, I met this guy – Emerson Sparts. Emerson Sparts, right. Who we ended up in one of the versions of the headline, we ended up calling him the king of clickbait, which I felt was like a little mean, but also kind of fair. And at the time, like, yeah, it's kind of like you're saying, they weren't shutting me down, but they were kind of like, and they being the other, my bosses at the New Yorker were kind of like, all right, prove it. Prove that this is a big deal. Because there's a kind of pitch that often happens at those Tuesday meetings that is, there's a business doing something that sounds kind of dodgy. To which I think the appropriate sort of skeptical response is there's lots of things that happen in the world that are people trying to make a buck and they kind of have to rise to a pretty high level of either outright criminality or there has to be some kind of real interesting scam that's intrinsically interesting or there has to be some, you know, the thing I was describing was not um, like some criminal conspiracy or it was just like there's this thing happening and it feels really gross and it feels like a harbinger of really bad things, but I just didn't know how to conceive of it exactly. So yeah, so they let me go do this thing because they could tell I was exercised about it. They could tell that it had like touched a nerve in me somehow. <laughs> they were like, just you go do it. And actually that was one of the ones where, you know, I was still an editor at the time. So I brought it into a meeting just for to put in the hopper. Like, oh, for someone else. Could, someone could just take this. Yeah. I wasn't thinking of things for myself. And they, I think, correctly sensed like you've got a feeling about this like you should be the one to do it because that's the other thing I mean a lot of these pieces what matters about it is the alchemy between writer and subject it's not someone should really write a piece about clickbait it's like you should you have things to say and you're going to say them in this embedded way that infuses the voice and feeling of the piece um, so this kid you know I, I was randomly seated next to him at a dinner and he started kind of imperiously explaining to me why his new media business model which was essentially just regurgitating garbage on the internet 
omgfacts.com omgfacts.com uh and uh givesmehope.com and you know like kind of heartwarming facts chicken soup for the teenage soul for the twitterverse or something <laughs> was one of their slogans like he would just churn this stuff out and it would be one thing if he were kind of like you know what man like i got to make a living and i just I found out that people will click on this shit if you serve it to them and that's just what I do. Like if it were sort of presented with some amount of humility, but instead it was like, the internet is a meritocracy. I have figured out how to crack the code and therefore I am your overlord and like your dinosaur media will implode. And I didn't think he was wrong about the imploding part. I just thought he was wrong to feel superior about it. (laughs) And um, so I was like exercised and I was like, And I kind of was starting to put the pieces together in my head like, okay. And again, these are all obvious steps in a syllogism. It's just like I had never really like worked it all out before. It's like, okay, there are very few checks on American businesses full stop. There are even fewer checks on American media businesses for very good reason, like the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Therefore, any 26-year-old schmuck can come along and start a website for almost no money and disrupt... The other websites such as nytimes.com and whatever, like, where does it stop? What is to stop us from going from, and I, and I don't want to like paint a, a an idealized vision of some golden age, like there have always been penny papers, there's always been sensationalist yellow journalism, blah, blah, blah. It's never been perfect. There's always been partisan press, there's always been open racism in the, in the media, like, but I guess what it was is that there was this tacit assumption that because it's technological improvement from a like cutting the fat, you know, business efficiency sense. Therefore, it's like civic improvement. Yeah. Well, the disruption in in and of itself is a value. Yeah. And it's like, do you guys have ever looked up disruption in the dictionary? Like, why are you exalting this per se as a value? There was just this basic unwillingness to look at, not even that I had some crystal ball and I was saying this will definitely turn out badly. It was just like, it's possible that it will turn out badly. And in fact, you have to, the burden of proof is on you to tell me why it won't, as opposed to the opposite, where at the time, I mean, it's hard to remember now because this has turned so quickly. It's, yeah. But it really was at the time, 2014, even 2015, you would show up at these parties, like the conference where I met this dude. And if you would say like, I think this whole thing we're doing here is counterproductive, they wouldn't throw you out, but they would like, laugh at you you'd yeah. be like you're a luddite yeah and it, when when did you start seeing the sort of like alt-right let's just say alt-right because yeah. there's a whole thing in the book about how difficult it is to categorize these things but which we can get into but when did you start seeing that what was the first story that kind of like put those things together that it was going to be not, it's not just a media technological phenomenon people are creating these platforms and they're being used in a certain way it's actually like a political phenomenon yeah well i kind of wish i could say that i was like really keyed into the stuff Rosie Gray and Charlie Warzel and Joe Bernstein were writing in BuzzFeed and I was really like following 4chan and 8chan obsessively and but that's not the truth the truth is for me Trump was the moment when I started going oh not only does this affect me and my relationships and not only is it annoying when people pick up their phone during dinner and all that shit but like who is in charge of the world's largest nuclear arsenal is dependent on the way like garbagey memes travel through these channels that people aren't even designing with any forethought that are just almost like emergent properties of capitalism. So 
very depressing. Yeah, it's not a good... It's one of many things that I found depressing about your work, Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's like, it doesn't mean that this stuff was fated to happen or that Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey wanted it to happen or that they were sitting in a back room, you know, going, we will destroy democracy. But it's not that. It's like they wanted to make money. They wanted to make people addicted to their products just like any good business person would want to do. There were no checks on them in the way that like if you were making another addictive product like opioids or, or you know, cigarettes or whatever. <laughs> opioids maybe not being the best example. Even actually. though, but like but there, were there were some. some. There was something. Yeah, there is like a controlled drug schedule. Yes. And this, there was nothing. <laughs> you need a prescription. Exactly. Like there, you can abuse it, but there's still something. This was like nothing. And also like... This literally affects everything else. Like one of the analogies I ended up coming to was social media was that it's like a party. Like you start a party. Mm -hmm. At first, there's no one there and you feel pathetic and you're like, how is this going to sustain itself? And then a few of your friends show up and then their friends show up. And then, you know, you want it to be fun and interesting. So you don't want to like hamper the mood. You want to let everybody do whatever they want to do and let their freak flag fly and, you know, smoke a cigarette if you want to smoke a cigarette like that's this is a cool party and then someone smokes a cigarette and someone else is like um i have asthma it would really be better if people didn't smoke in here and then you're like oh okay now i have trade-offs and i have to make rules and you extrapolate that out and suddenly two billion people are at your party which is you know facebook is what 2.3 billion people now it's like bigger than catholicism and islam and that's a too big of a party to control and so by the time you come in kind of ex post facto and start to try to make rules, it's like a little bit too late. And also there's a very baked in ethos of, well, wait, you said in the, in the beginning of this party, you said anything goes. Like you said, this was going to be a cool party where people don't tell me what to do. And then if you come in retroactively and start trying to make rules, people start rebelling against you. You start worrying that people are going to all decide to leave on mass and go to your rival party and or your or even worse like a party in China. So you <laughs> so you are constantly trying to maintain market share at the expense of making sure that people at your party aren't like burning couches and throwing them out the window. Although I, I feel like one of the things that's clear looking back is that it wasn't like people were trying to control that at least until after the election it wasn't like people were trying to control that and failing for the most part Dave, for the most part yeah. the kind of people who started these companies were actually principally they had established a principle by which they would not try to do that mm -hmm. no matter what happened yep. it's like if law enforcement comes to us and tells us that laws are being broken then maybe we'll look into it but other than that free speech and again like like a lot of these things free speech great First Amendment, great. Freedom of inquiry and freedom to be a contrarian and think for yourself. Like, these are all good things. But like all things, they have to be kind of held in tension with other things. And if you just become an absolutist and you just sort of say, like, dogmatically, free speech is all that matters. So therefore, you can just shout racist insults at someone all day long and make them cry and leave and threaten to blow up their house. Like... At a certain point, there are limits. That's just how this stuff works when you're living in a society. And these things, the more they became less like a pathetic party with 10 people and more like a society, the more they had to kind of make up rules on the fly, like as it was happening. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know how to do it because they were coders who just wanted to make a cool thing. It was like if you had someone build a room for a party and then had them make up 
the laws by which that would they're like i just know how to make rooms <laughs> so you have these things coming together you're starting to see these things in your story so there's there's the tech end of it which are the people who have built these platforms and then there's sort of like the media part of it which is memes and clickbait and things that are sort of getting able to generate huge attention in a way that the old school media can't and then you have this kind of like right wing movement of ideas that's developing and you could write about it as those are ideas that are out there in the world but you wrote about them as reported pieces and it struck me that that raised like a bunch of interesting challenges one of which is the people in the right wing movement alt right whatever they're trolling and it's very difficult to tell when they're joking and not joking sometimes they're doing both at the same time and how did you navigate that like you profiled Mike Cernovich that was like one of the big things and he features in the book how do you navigate this realm of like when to take people seriously, especially people who are doing saying terrible things and then saying, oh, I was just joking? Yeah, that that's like a horrible reporting challenge. Yeah, it's a tough reporting challenge. It's also a tough ethical challenge because it's like on one level, you're trying to get it right and make sure you're correctly understanding the levels of irony and that they're not trolling you into printing things that aren't true or into taking literally things that were supposed to be jokes or vice versa. It's also an ethical challenge in the sense of like, if there are people who are propagandists whose goal is to get enough attention from the mainstream media to smuggle their message through larger channels and you are being used as an instrument of that, like, fuck that. I don't mm-hmm. want to be part of that. And so... Well, that's the kind of third rail that like that New York Times mm-hmm. profile of Nazis mm-hmm. touched. Mm-hmm. And how do you stay away from that? I thought about it constantly. I, I lost <laughs> more sleep about it than I... I mean, it's really, really hard. Like... You again, you have to hold lots of different values in tension, right? So it's not enough to take one and go, well, I wrote something true. And the point of journalism is to write something true. So like, yes, it might be true that Gavin McInnes is a naughty provocateur who wears Natalie pressed white dress shirts. Those are all true facts. Gavin McInnes being the ex-Vice guy who then founded this thing called the Proud Proud Boys, Boys, which is... Uh, essentially a white supremacist violent group. Yes, he would be shocked and chagrined to hear you describe it that way. But yeah, he. Um, there's one Proud Boy party that I was reporting from where I was standing next to Gavin and he says, people are always calling us a white pride organization, but like, where do they even get that from? Like we, some of my best friends are black and like we're a civic nationalist organization, not a white nationalist organization. And then he leaves the room and I turn to the guy next to me and I'm like, why are you here? And he's like, because I'm white and I'm proud to be white. And then Gavin's always saying you're supposed to be proud to be white. So it's like he heard the dog whistle pretty clearly, mm-hmm. even though Gavin will deny it if asked. So again, there's these levels of like, if I had quoted the first part accurately, there would have been no fact-checking violation of me just saying, then Gavin McInnes, a very well-dressed man with well-sculpted facial hair, told me that he denies any accusations of impropriety. But if you don't dig a little more, it's not even about like both sides or representing everything in an equitable way. It's just like you're not getting the story. You're getting fooled. And I was constantly petrified that I was getting fooled by these people. Like there, there's so many layers of denials and jokes and you can get fooled by them by taking their denials too seriously. You can also get fooled by them by getting so tired of being gaslit that you start going, well, no matter what you say, I know you're a Nazi and you can deny it all you want and I'm still going to call you a Nazi. It's like, that's not good either because 
it's like then you cry wolf and you use up all your Nazi cards for when you actually meet the Nazis. But then you also have to grapple with this question of inevitably people are going to say, why don't you just ignore them? Yes, I grappled with that all the time. And I should say most of the things I did ignore. I mean, most of the times that people would pitch me, hey, I'm a shitty person on the Internet. You want to profile me like. They I would contact you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they knew who I was and they and and you know and and people are constantly vying for attention in this world. I mean, one of the people who I I mean, spoiler, did end up spending time profiling was this guy Lucian Wintrich who, you know, one of my first big entrees into this world was the Deplorable, they called it, their inauguration party. Get it, Deplorable. I was there and it was their inauguration bash of like, we did this, guys. We memed Trump into the White House. So like everyone in that room wanted me to profile them, basically. And mostly I found it all skin crawly and I didn't want to do. I mean, it's weird. Like, obviously, I'm there. I'm reporting on it. But I didn't want to be used as a vector. I wanted to be in in control of what I wrote. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I didn't want to be. I mean, again, I think when this stuff is done right, a certain kind of journalism, it's so filtered through the lens of the observer, whether it's there's any first person pronouns in it or not, that it's like, here's my take on what it looks like when our country starts going down the shitter. So it's not like I'm being told by my subjects what's worthy of my attention and what's not. That always feels like uh, an important distinction. But so I'm at this party and one of the people who is vying for my attention is this guy, Lucian Wintrich, who just is obvious. He's like Milo Light, like Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos. Milo Yiannopoulos had decided not to go to the party because he what he wanted to be the headliner and they didn't guarantee him headline. I mean, these people are all just ego driven maniacs. So I um, so Milo wasn't there, but Lucian was this other, you know, he's gay. He's very interested in dressing in this very upscale kind of vintage preppy way. He kind of really admires Ann Coulter as a kind of proto troll. And I was like, go away. I don't. And then he says, you know, I'm going to go. There was this kind of um, all night. There were these kind of people making speeches. It was kind of this like half political rally, half, you know, like black tie gala. And uh, he's like, listen to my speech. So I, I was like trying to see if I could grab Peter Thiel for a like on the spot interview. It's a funny scene when Peter Thiel shows up. <laughs> I'm like, hey, there's Peter Thiel. But I was like, okay, I'm like, while I'm kind of hovering around Peter Thiel, I'm going to listen to Lucian Wintrich from the stage. And, or I, I don't remember which order it happened in exactly, but he um, goes on stage and he writes for this, to call it a tabloid is like mean to Joseph Pulitzer. It's like, it's called the Gateway Pundit and it is this extremely popular website that, you know, I've found there's kind of a correlation between how bad a website is for the world and how bad a website is for your RAM on your computer. <laughs> like there are some websites that you open and you're just like, I think my computer's just immediately going to die. The fan starts worrying like, and you're like, it's one of those where the correlation is strong. It, um, wait a minute. I just want to point out, I feel like you also described Salon that way. Uh, <laughs> that is true, actually, with the, with the exception of Salon. I mean, there's, there's basically two camps. There's websites that are like that because they feel like they're just messing with you. And then there's websites where it's like, we just got to run a lot they're of so ads. Desperate We're just to make sorry. Just we got to like, do it. We will, every possible ad tracker will be placed on this site. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So with the exception of Salon, <laughs> but, um, Lucian. So he writes for this thing called the Gateway Pundit, which is like, breaking 
Hillary Clinton has gum disease and is a member of Muslim Brotherhood. And they, they are very into counter narratives and conspiracies. And they're an important link in the chain. Like mm. it can't just be Sean Hannity can't spend all day on Gab. Like there has to be something transmitting the memes. Gab is like a right wing chat. Yeah. It's kind of like Twitter for. Yes. If you get kicked off Twitter. Yes. It yeah. is the kind of bizarro Twitter. So point being, the Gateway Pundit is a shitty website. Lucian Wintrich writes for the Gateway Pundit. When I was at the Deplora Ball, he went up on stage and said, I just want to announce to all of you here in this beautiful occasion that I'm going to be the White House correspondent for the Gateway Pundit. And then I kind of was like, you know what? You win, Lucian. I'm going to write about you. Because he had made it inside. I mean, it truly, it was the ultimate manifestation of... It was the the gate crashers have breached the gates. It was like, literally, this is, you know, the most sanctified. I mean, whatever, we can argue about what kind of journalism happens within the White House briefing room and whether that is the most truly sanctified form of journalism. But it's definitely a status symbol that in any other timeline of our universe that was not a demonic simulation, Lucian Wintridge should not be in that room. And he got in that room. And even when I was on the mega bus down to DC with him, I was like, still, this could be a troll. But even if this is a troll, you know, it won't be the same kind of piece. Maybe it'll be a shorter piece, but even then I'll get a piece out of it. <laughs> like if he was just doing this to fuck with me, like if he got to the White House gates and they were like, you're not on the list, go away. And then he like made a video about how they were denying him access because they were censoring him and whatever. Even in Trump's America, real journalism is still being shut out. Then that would be like a talk piece. Hmm. But that that just highlights for me what is such a mindfuck about what you're covering, which is that it doesn't fall into any category. Like you, if you look at it from afar, you can just kind of say like, oh, there's a thing, the alt-right, and they do this stuff. But then when you look up closely, it feels like you have true anti-Semites, you have true Nazis, white supremacists, then you have people that are like dabbling in that, and then you have people who are joking about it, but also dabbling in it. And it just feels to me like, impossible to kind of reconcile it all yeah sometimes you could get to the bottom of it in a like investigative way and i had a few of those moments in the book where i was like just sat around for long enough that they kind of forgot i was there and then started saying what they actually believed and sometimes they will even just say what they actually believe like on their own podcasts when they think nobody's listening mm -hmm. so they'll just sort of let their guard down and you know richard spencer will you know go on CNN and be like, I just want to fight for a world of equality or whatever bullshit he says. And then he'll go on a podcast like The Daily Show, my favorite podcast, and say, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm trying to like make sure the Jews like leave this country because they are destroying everything. Like, so it's not like sometimes if you just hang around for long enough, the truth will reveal itself. But in other cases, like you're saying, it's not that simple. It's not like these people just are Nazis and you just have to wait for the mask to slip. It's more like, I mean, to return to the example of Lucian, like, so I spent much of the first few weeks of the Trump administration shadowing him through the Trump White House and watching him kind of just suck at it. Like, he never got to ask a question. He wasn't really prepared to ask a question. He was kind of just enjoying the exercise of being there because just even the fact that he was there was freaking people out and getting people like me to pay attention to him. And so like you never, I mean, to return to your like trade-off 
ethics question, you never escape from that. There's never a time when you go like, I am in the clear ethically here 100%. Yeah. There's always some trade-off. Yeah. And I was always aware that there was some transactional thing going on. And I guess, you know, you just run various trade-offs in your mind of like, how much does it help my readers to be informed about this stuff and put that up against how much the alt-light or alt-right people want me to be doing the thing I'm doing and try to weigh those in the balance. Well, then... I mean, the other aspect of it is that you're Jewish and you're sitting sort of amongst them. And there are these moments where they kind of like, like, especially with the Daily Show, a guy where he's sort of like, he asks you. you That was a weird moment because I, I mean, this, this is a person who is explicitly anti-Semitic to the point as is like a brand. I mean, he's anonymous at the time. Eventually his identity comes out, but, and you are kind of like spending time with his family trying to figure out who this guy is and then somewhere in the reporting process he realizes that you are like the target yeah and while it was while he was on the phone with but i mean that feels like another layer of discomfort that you would experience in the reporting process totally a difficult one to just like mentally process when you go home totally well i actually i was at home i was on speakerphone with him at the kitchen table and Sarah, my wife, was like kind of hovering around listening in because she was like home too. And it was Friday night. We were actually supposed to go out to dinner. And I was like, can't go. I've got a date with a Nazi. And then I like, um, and I, it never occurred to me that he wouldn't know I was Jewish because he had been hearing rumors for weeks that I was kind of circling around him. And we had already emailed and he had already like told me to like, he had already blown me off. So he knew who I was. He knew my name. He had access to Google. Like, I've written for Hebe magazine. Like, I'm not like, what are you doing, buddy? I, I just read some of your uh, film film <laughs> criticism for Hebe. Avatar. I stand by that Avatar review. Sarah hates it and told me she almost wouldn't date me because she hated it so much. But I feel like the, whatever they're called, are the Maccabees. Whatever they're called, the Dothraki or whatever their names are. But, um, and also I stand by Avatar as a film. I would see it again right now. But, um. I disagree, but we can... We can address that off. I think off I'm going to storm out. Um, but they uh, look, I actually it's weird because, yes, it's uncomfortable to be talking to someone who is a professional for a living anti-Semite at the moment that they're finding out that you're the enemy. It was comical. It was disturbing. It wasn't like a calming experience. It wasn't like I didn't like just sort of get off that phone call and be like, all right, what's on TV, you know? But at the same time, I didn't have the same ethical dilemma because in a weird way, my like subject position as a journalist was completely already predetermined. There was no, with everything else, I constantly felt the need to make clear to the reader and make clear to myself that I wasn't getting fooled by the bullshit yes, I can try to tease out all the layers of trolling and joking and not joking and irony and not irony while also trying to maintain enough of a moral compass to be clear about like, but their fundamental enterprise is still a like fucked up propagandistic enterprise. And even though I didn't want to have to say in every paragraph parentheses I know that these people are shitty like you don't I didn't want to make it that explicit but I wanted that to be embedded in the approach in the voice in the whatever because there's you know there's a more 
Gawker version of that, which in a way is more honest, which is just like shitty shithead does shitty thing is would be the headline. Yeah. The New Yorker is not going to do that version of the story. And so I had to wrestle with how to do it in a New Yorkery way that felt, you know, high minded or whatever without giving too much legitimacy and taking too seriously things that don't deserve to be taken seriously. Yeah. With the anti-Semite, that was kind of off the table because I was like, okay, I don't have to worry about where I stand and where the reader thinks I stand. <laughs> I just, I am who I am and he is who he is and I can just write the story. Yeah. You know, so in a way that was like the clearest one. I mean, to go back to the, what the New Yorker wouldn't, wouldn't do versus what, you know, uh, like a gawker, an older gawker, let's say, yeah. uh, pre, the previous pre- Peter Thiel gawker, whatever you would call it, <laughs> would do. Um, I mean, this kind of takes us back to the beginning of being the sort of like anti-institutionalist kid is that it's interesting in the story how you describe becoming, you are the defender of traditional norms not just the obvious one, like the Nazis, but but the people who are just messing around, yeah, and the tech people who are saying like, "What's so bad? Anything goes. It's right. fine." Right. The norms of like old traditional gatekeeper journalism. Yeah. I never thought I would end up there. Like I never thought that I would be the one. When I was like a post collegiate Brooklyn kid, you know, showing up at these like pretentious sort of like all the sad young literary men parties in like walk-up apartments in Brooklyn and just having opinions just like all you are is just a machine of just like my opinions are better than your opinions I was that guy I'll admit it I was that guy so those that room of people to them the New Yorker is the man Mm -hmm. they're never gonna be like well you know what's really great the New Yorker and the New York Times and CNN like that's not gonna be that's not the aesthetic so then a week later I'm working at the New Yorker and suddenly I'm the man like I didn't I felt not like I had like betrayed. It's not like the New Yorker is bad in that world. It's just not like interesting or cool. It's like, you know, the establishment. And then I really had to wrestle with how much am I really an anti-institutionalist? Because even if I feel like there's some part of me that's anti-authoritarian or anti-institutionalist, when I actually, I've never actually had a job before. So I'm like anti-institutionalist in theory because the institutions that I've been bucking against have been like ones that have nothing to do with me or ones that are like my middle school or my college or whatever. Or like Wells Fargo. Exactly. Or well, yeah, damn Wells Fargo. But then I'm like actually working at a place where I'm like, oh, wait, I am definitely the least smart person here. And I definitely respect everyone who's here and they're just doing a really good thing really well. (laughs) Like what am I rebelling against exactly? (laughs) And again, like, it's hard to separate that from the completely legitimate argument that mainstream media is flawed in a million ways. Yeah, gatekeepers have presented huge problems throughout yeah. history. They've, yeah. they've made massive mistakes. They've led us into wars. They've There's all kinds of corporate control issues. There's all kinds of, I mean, those critiques are really robust and well taken. But the problem, one of the many problems is that when the disruptors came along and said, hey, we've got this flawed system. Guess what? We're going sh- to disrupt it. We're going to topple it. We're going to shake it up. They had no even inkling of a thought about what was going to replace it. It was just like, I think that was just, again, seen as like a fusty Luddite, you know, oh, well, you don't get it, bro. Like you just innovate and then it like works itself out. And I think we have now seen it doesn't just work itself out. And are you... 
do you feel like you want to continue trying to figure out what these people are doing? Like, do you want to stay in this world or are you done with this world? There are moments in the book where I feel like it seemed like you you couldn't take it anymore, just yeah. being inside of that world. Yeah. And do you feel like you're going to stay in there and try to figure out what's going on and kind of like offer up this explanation on an ongoing basis? Because it's it doesn't stop. Now. Yeah, it doesn't stop now. I mean, I did say throughout the book, like my my next project is going to be about puppies and rainbows and ice cream. <laughs> and I don't, I feel like I'm going to burn a lot of bridges. Like I, I feel like I'm speaking pretty honestly in the book about how I'm not a fan of these people. I don't try to do the sort of straight ahead, both sides journalism where I say like, well, you must admit, you know, I mean, again, like I do try to be fair in the sense that I don't make things up and I don't sort of take cheap shots and I try to keep it to like, the ones who are Nazis are Nazis and the ones who are not are not. And, you know, I try to be fair in that way. And there are people in the book who come off way worse than others. And therefore, there are people who come off better than others. But I don't know how many of these people are going to want to hang out with me for another three years after this. And I don't think I would want to do that. I think the underlying problems don't go away. And in a way, there are certain like underlying preoccupations with belief and sort of concerns of like how do we form our beliefs how do we know what's true how do we justify our beliefs to each other that I think will stick with me forever and I've always been drawn to writing pieces about in a way that I'm not really conscious of at the time but I'll kind of look back on a piece and be like oh that piece was also about how we form our beliefs and how we make our beliefs intelligible to other people so that I think will stick with me and I definitely think I'll continue to be interested in whether our democracy will survive. Uh, It'll just be a hobby. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in media broadly concerned. And, you know, there's so many things, I think part part of why it took us as a society as weirdly long as it did to come around to this. I mean, even to the point when I was shopping this book proposal around, it was still like, oh, what are you some kind of like starry-eyed anti-capitalist weirdo who just wants to like tear down America's most successful companies and they weren't seen as robber barons they were seen as innovators Mm -hmm. and it was like well if you don't like what's happening on these platforms then you just don't like free speech and you just don't like people's representations of their inner psyche and it's like the very subtle ways in which it was warping people's psyche I mean again I feel like There are, there have been amazing investigative accounts of people uncovering documents and showing how people at these companies have engaged in malfeasance and all these things. But that's not where my main skill set is. My main skill set is in trying to tell a story that describes the effect it's having on us and on the world. And that doesn't always come from like original material per se I mean a lot of it is original but some of it is just taking things that are familiar and re-describing them to a reader in a way that makes them go like it's more a feeling even than a set of logical conclusions like I again to just like lay my pretentious cards on the table like I really feel like nonfiction kind of gets a bum rap because everybody talks about nonfiction in terms of oh, well, I have ingested this information and I now have these five facts that I can repeat at a cocktail party. And it's like, 
sure, some nonfiction is like that. Some of it can be reduced to a bullet point primer of whatever, but a good book is a good book. And whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it should create a feeling. It should create a world. It should be a thing you want to live in and that tilts the way you see things. I mean, like, isn't that the point? I, It's always just been so weird to me that it's like if you were like looking at a painting in a museum and then someone was like, oh, you know, those like apples and pears in that still life, those actually existed. Those were real apples and pears. And you're like, oh, okay, never mind. I don't care about this painting anymore. Like, I don't care about the composition. I don't care about the colors. I just, you should have told me like, oh, it's three apples and two pears. Okay. And you walk away. Like what? I don't understand. It's, I don't get why the fact that it is based on real things or based on invented things. It's still a book, right? Like, that's why when people go, oh, it reads like a novel. I'm like, a good novel or a bad novel? Like, what do you mean (laughs) it reads like a novel? Like, could you imagine being like, all right, I'm going to give you Gatsby in 10 minutes. It's like there's rich people and there's like really excesses and blah, blah, blah. But like in the end, it's going to be okay. Like what? And again, like I'm not F. Scott Fitzgerald. I'm not like that good, but it's like, shouldn't you try to be that good? Andrew, thank you for taking a conversation that is ongoing in our lives and reducing (laughs) some part of it into this podcast. Well, you don't always buy me nice bourbon. So that's, (laughs) you know, I didn't realize that that's what it took. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Andrew Morantz for coming in. Uh, did he really have a choice? I don't think he did. His book is coming out uh, next week. You can pre-order it now. It's called Anti-Social. Check it out. Thanks to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern Marina Clementi, and as always to our sponsors Pit Writers and Mailchimp. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.